awesome. I'm glad you guys are here. This is really exciting. There's a few moments in there where you're like, oh my goodness, this is uh, right. I heard somebody chuckle right when it said, uh, talking about how marriage can be hard and difficult. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of chuckling. Well, hey, um, I'm so glad that you guys are here. We've been talking through 1 Corinthians, and in, in 1 Corinthians 7, we've been talking a lot about marriage, and uh, today we're going to be talking about a different aspect of relationships and all that. But first, I want to talk to you guys. Have any of you ever had your back out of alignment? Like you were going to do something, right, simply just putting your kid in the car because you still own a sedan because you haven't learned the lesson that a minivan is the way to go. And so you were like leaning in and you're trying to do that and your lower back just went, you like that feeling, you know what I'm talking about? And what happens when your lower back or your back is out of alignment? What ends up happening is the rest of your body just so slowly starts to deteriorate and fall apart. You're like, I might as well give up, I'm done. Um, because it just gets so bad. Well, I was watching a YouTube video a while back, I had some back pains and I was laying in bed, so I was gonna watch somebody else who had worse back pains. I don't know, it's weird. Um, and so I was watching and this kid was literally like twisted and bent over and contorted in a really bad position. And this kid in a foreign country and um, he was young, maybe like 20, 21 years old and couldn't do anything. I mean, just crippled by simply something like a vertebrae getting out of place and over time, other things starting to get out of place. And uh, so somebody grabbed this young man, they took him off the streets and they took him to see a chiropractor. And this chiropractor began to do some work on him, started to adjust some of his joints, started to massage out some of the muscles, started to stretch out some of the tendons, it just really went to work on this kid. And they did this day after day after day and then they started to do it over weeks. And what they began to see with this young guy is what was crippled and broken and crunched down began to kind of stretch out. And his life, his body began to get in alignment. And we think of that like going in and get adjusted and we get it straightened out. We're like, okay, cool, I'm back to normal. For this kid, it changes his life. Instead of being a poor beggar on the side of the street, suddenly everything in his life suddenly also gets in line. He can get a job. Since he can maintain a job, he can possibly get married, possibly have kids. His entire life was changed because he got some things in order. Today we're talking about uh, singleness and marriage and what that looks like. But one of the things that we're going to be talking about, which is the center part of this passage, actually has nothing to do with your marriage and it has everything to do with getting your priorities in the right order. Because when your priorities are not in the right order, especially whatever you place at the top, when you place that priority at the top of your life, it'll dictate everything that comes after it, right? And so today we're going to take a look at a passage that's not just truth for you if you're single or if you're married. It's truth for all of us in every circumstance. That when we have right priorities in the right order, things get straightened out in a way that God intended. And it brings life in a way that you cannot imagine. It's what you're looking for but you're going about in the wrong ways. And I'm excited to dive in with you. You guys ready to do this? 1 Corinthians 7, God's word, getting our backs popped. It's gonna be awesome. All right, so 1 Corinthians 7, we're in verse 25. And what we gotta do when we come to this passage is we gotta figure out what is the question that Paul is trying to answer. If you go back to the beginning of chapter seven, just flip over a page or whatever it is, um, Paul says this in verse one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the whole letter takes a huge turn at that point because Paul is now wanting to talk to these guys about questions that they have. 
So apparently they sent him a list. They're like, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we know that one of the questions is around this statement. And the statement that the Corinthians make, they're asking, is this a true statement? The statement is this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationship or relations with a woman. And so for the last couple of weeks, not last week, but the prior two weeks, uh, Jim and Tommy began to expound on what he's talking about. He began to answer that question. But now in verse 25, he's kind of switching and he's focusing in on a certain people group. He says this, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. He's like, all right, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about sex, we've talked about these things. Now concerning the betrothed, now concerning those who are engaged, is what he's saying. And let's just go ahead and lump in singles and those who are engaged. So for the last several weeks, the single people were like, this is all about marriage. Why am I even here? Today, it's about singleness in some ways. And so all the single people were like, yeah, amen. And married people, it's good for you too. You just wait. So in other words, he's talking about single people. And some of the questions that Paul's going to answer are this. Um, should they seek to get married if they're single? Is it okay and is it good to get married if you're single? Would they better serve Christ if they were single? If so, should those who are married separate for the single life? Just, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, the answer is no. Okay, so if you're like, oh man, I can't wait. Um, should widowed friends seek another spouse? These are some of the questions he's going to answer. So verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So what is Paul doing right here? He's just kind of opening up with a statement that's a very open-handed statement, okay? It's an open-handed statement. He's acknowledging, hey guys, I'm about to answer your question, but no, there's some freedom here, and this is not a command from the Lord. But as a person who's been around the block a little bit, who's seen this, I've got some wisdom for you that I think is trustworthy. That's what Paul's about to say. And he says, you know, this is not necessarily just wisdom for me, but I think this is wisdom from God for all of us. And that is what Paul is kind of starting with. So what is some of that wisdom? Here's the wisdom. Time is short. The stakes are high. Get it in good order. All right. You're going to write this down. Time is short. The stakes are high. Get it in good order. I'm telling you, you've got to remember this. So time is short. How does Paul show us that the time is short? Verse 26, 29, and 31. Check this out. I'm going to read those in order for you. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Talking about the betrothed, those engaged, those in single. Verse 29, 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. What does Paul mean by these? The time is short. Why is Paul bringing this up? Well, commentators differ slightly on what Paul might mean here, okay? Does this have to do with special circumstances that are going on in Corinth? Or does this have to do with the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus? Well, if it's, the commentators are right, like the commentary I was reading, if they're right, I think verse 26 does show that. Because in the land, 1 Corinthians, in Corinth, in the land between years 50 and 55 AD, there was a famine in the land. 
Now, we don't experience famine here like they did in the old world. Famine was devastating. Many people died. You would have to travel to other regions of the world to try to find a place where they had food and the famine wasn't affecting them. You would be displaced because of a famine. It was hard at times and probably not a good time to get married and produce more mouths to feed, right? So he's saying in the, in the present distress, this might not be a good idea. But I think that that's not the only thing that Paul's talking about. If you look at verses 29 and 31, I think he's also talking about the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Look at the way he says it. For the appointed time has grown very short. That's not talking about a famine. That's not talking about present circumstances. That's talking about eternal realities. Do you understand? Not present circumstances, but eternal realities. Verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is talking about is the eternal reality. And here's the eternal reality. Guys, if you're new to this, this will sound new to you. But if you've been around, you know this. The way the world is right now is broken because of sin. But our God didn't just come to redeem it. He said that he's coming again one day. There's going to be a return of a king. And that king is going to reestablish the world. And it's going to be good. Amen. Let's go. The present form of this broken world is going to pass away. and God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth where things are not going to be out of line. Cancer's not going to plague. Suicide and depression are not going to be a part of our culture. It's going to be as it was intended to be because our God is good. And that's what he's going to do. So Paul is saying, look, the time is running out. Now, if you're a Christian in the room or you're a smart guy, you're like, man, Hold on a second. When Paul, from between when Paul wrote this to now, it's been almost 2,000 years. Is the time really that short? 2,000 years. I heard somebody say every generation has believed that they were the generation that Jesus was coming again. I'm going to tell you right now, I believe my generation is when he's coming. I really believe he's coming now. He's coming. And he's saying the time is short. He's telling them, look, it's not that you should just maybe not get married because of present distress and famine. And let me tell you, single people, there are times where it's not a good idea for you to get married. But because of present circumstances. But he's also talking about eternal realities. And he's saying, listen to this. In the eternal reality, if you put it in your mind and realize that Jesus is coming again and you take that seriously, it should have an effect on the way you live your life today. Time is short. But time's not just short. The stakes are high. Why are the stakes high for us as Christians? They're high because we're talking about the eternal destination of souls. We're talking about souls, guys. We're talking about people, your neighbors, your children, your cousins, your coworkers, the people you interact with, you have never interacted with just a mere mortal. You're interacting with souls. And the stakes are high because they matter. And uh, you matter. 
And that's why that one day somebody shared the gospel with you. Because they recognized the stakes were high and the time was short and they knew you need to know. And Jesus may not come back in my lifespan, but I know life is short. And time is running out for some of you and for some of our neighbors. So the stakes are high. The mission that God has got us on is colossal. Anybody agree with me? Like when I think about what God has called us to do, this is a, this is a like world-saving plan we're on right here. Like put away Marvel, we're on the real world-saving track. And when I think about that, I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. This is way bigger than me. Anybody feel that way? Like if I have people come to me and they're like, man, well, you know, does, does Cody need another church? I'm like, hey, there's 10,000 people and I'm struggling to deal with the six in my community group. It's the reason why we name this place Outpost Community. Uh, we believe that we are on mission to save the world. And we were sent by Jesus with the Holy Spirit within us and, and with others who are like us. And we're stationed here at this missionary outpost to look for the fires in the land and move towards them with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We're a missionary outpost, we are a people called to be here, sent by a sovereign from another land to be in this foreign land to represent him. I got a text yesterday from a really good friend named Caleb Weldy who serves on the Wyoming Hotshots. And he's literally, they go out to the fires and they run to them, not from them to save. That's courage. And we should pray for them. But we should realize that I, would, I believe that some of those hot shots, it's scary for them to run towards people with broken marriages and with eternal fires going on in their lives than it is to run into a fire. We're called to go towards people because the stakes are high and time is running out. And that's why Paul says, listen, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 29 through 31, look at this. He couches the point between two statements. First point. Uh, uh, first statement, the appointed time is grow very short, verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. And what he says in the middle is crazy. Check this out. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Wait, what? And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. What in the Sam Hill is Paul talking about right here? Should I abandon my family for the call to ministry? Should I stop crying, stop buying, and stop having parties and celebrating with friends? Is that what Paul is saying? Does it look like that? It does look like that. Well, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying that you need to get your life in good order. You need to get your life in the right order. This is what he says, verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to relay, uh, lay a restraint upon you. I'm not trying to hold you back, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's called to keep the main thing, the main thing. That priority number one in your life should be devotion to Jesus. It's above everything. When you keep Jesus as the main thing, realizing that the time is short and the stakes are high, you begin to reorder your life in a way that matches up to that end. We got the Olympics coming, right? I think they're still coming. Are they still coming? I have no idea. 
I've been disconnected from this. Okay, Olympics are coming, and you guys know these Olympians, their set goal is to do what? To win. To win. And everything in their life, everything in their life is ordered in such a way that they can win. Do you understand? The way that they purchase things, the food that they're going to eat, the kind of sleep they're going to get, where they live, they move to these Olympic training centers, right? The relationships that they have, everything is changed for the sake of one goal, to win. And Paul says the same thing for you and for me in 1 Corinthians 9, okay? Verse 24. You're already in 1 Corinthians, so might as well go over there. And it may be on the screen. He says this, do you not know that in a race all runners run? No doubt. But only one receives the prize. Listen to this. Look what he says. Paul's like, he knows who he's, he's, talking to, he's talking to athletes, he's talking to coaches. He knows what he's talking about. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's contrasting the present reality versus the eternal reality. Hey, look, they're trying to get trophies. We're trying to get a reward in heaven. They're trying to get on a platform. We're trying to see people rescued from the dominion of darkness, brought into the marvelous light of Christ. I do not box as one beating the air, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself uh, should be disqualified. Verse 26, back above that, it says, so I do not run aimlessly. And this is what Paul is trying to tell you in, in, in chapter 7. When he says, uh, you know, those who have wives live as, as you don't, he's not saying go get divorced or leave your wife. He says, she's not your top priority. Jesus is your top priority and you're devoted to him and everything else that comes after that is shaped to meet that. So you don't date aimlessly, you don't buy aimlessly, you don't mourn aimlessly, you don't deal with the world aimlessly. Like an Olympic athlete as a Christian, you let everything in your life get shaped and adjusted and get in line under the one priority and that's devoting to Christ. Now you're like, well, so I gotta become a pastor? No, do not do this. Unless you have to do it. It means you be in the oil field, but you serve to the glory of God. He's saying, I don't box meaninglessly at the air because I live a life on purpose. I'm living a life on purpose because I am a gospel transformed citizen of a new kingdom. Meaning, I live for the glory of God. And because I live for the glory of God, I order my life in a way that serves that end. And I gather with other citizens of that king kingdom who I can help and who can help me meet that end. You get that? That's why this matters. That's why community group matters. Okay, now the question is, how you doing? There's tons of grace, but is the spine of your life out of joint? Are there things that you're placing at the top of your priority list? Here's what I'll tell you. It would take about a week for me to figure out what is your top priority, hanging out with you. And you, spend time with me, it'll take you about a week to figure out what's Greg's top priorities. Grab my bank statement, you'll figure out what my top priority is. Look at my screen time on my phone, you'll see where my top priorities are. Let's just be honest and real. There's grace, this room's full of sinners with bad priorities. 
There's a sinner right here talking to you about it. But the reality is Paul saying that as a Christian, we got one priority, top one, and that is Jesus Christ. Everything else gets in line. So this is for the high school student here in the room whose top priority is to be accepted. I want to tell you, the desire, the top priority to be accepted is going to break your back as a human being. And it's going to lead you to do things that you will regret. And all the adults said, yes and amen. Get with us. We'll show you the scars. It does not lead to the life that you think you want. But if you entrust yourself to God, look to him and realize that he has already approved you. And he loves you just as you are. Then it'll lead to freedom in a right life. This is for the mom who's got three kids in the room whose top priority is control. You just want everything to be controlled and you want it to be in your order and your way. You made a mistake in having three children. Here's the thing though, it's, we know this to be true. Making control your top priority would throw other priorities in your life out of alignment. And instead of your children being a blessing in your life, they'll become obstacles to your inner peace and joy. Their failures and the failures of your husband will stand in the way and they will uh, end up getting in your way. But if you would entrust your children and your husband and your family to God and keep the top priority God and devoting to him and let him be in control, you'll find that your life is filled with joy and peace that you're looking for. This is for the man in this room who's working two jobs, trying to get success and early retirement. Now, working two jobs to make ends meet, I totally get it. But chasing the road to get early retirement as your top priority, it looks good in the ending. And you're telling people, well, hey, when I get there, I'm going to have so much time to be able to, to do really what you want to do. But if you put God at the top of your priority list, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything that you're looking for, he will provide for you. You have all that you need. That is literally what God says. He owns it all. And not only that, but when you begin to find, you'll begin to find life in your work like you've never found it before. And it'll begin to be meaning. It'll be a mission field. I've got brothers and sisters in this room. They serve in all kinds of places. They're in the oil field, fire department, uh, search and rescue, all these places. And they get to be missionaries in those places. They don't have to leave what they're doing to serve Jesus. They're serving Jesus and living for him. Friends, time is short. The stakes are high. It's time for us to put good things in order, to get Jesus to the top. That is the point of this passage. But now, my single friends, let's apply it the way Paul was applying it. Here's the big second point. It is this. Your priority does not affect your relationship status. You hear me? Your top priority being Jesus does not change your relationship status. And your relationship status does not change your top priority. Check this out. It's a common anxiety uh, for people, especially in the United States, uh, their relationship status, whether you're married, divorced, widowed, or single, and especially singleness, okay? Inside and outside of the church, there's an immense emphasis on not being single. Like whatever you do in your life, do not be single. And if you're single, there's something wrong with you, right? Like that's what they're communicating. There's something wrong with you. And there's a strong message that I am not enough. I am not right. I am not complete unless I have, you know, the man on the white horse or whatever the case may be. All right? I've never ridden a white horse. I don't even like riding horses. 
Okay? Is she laughing? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. But here's the thing. Is that the case for the New Testament Christian? What we've been saying, like, is that the case for the New Testament Christian? And if it is the case, what about Paul, Timothy, most of the disciples, and uh, that one guy, his name starts with a J, Jesus. All of these were men who lived incredible lives that resulted in fruitful ministry, including the eternal transformation of souls. They recognized that the time was short and the stakes were high, and they ordered their lives in ways that displayed God's glory as their top priority. One, of these, one man that is a, a famous is a guy named David Livingstone. Maybe you've heard of David Livingstone. David served in Africa, and uh, the mission uh, organization that he was a part of was kind of anxious about sending David. You know why they were anxious about sending David? Because he was single. And they weren't quite sure that they wanted to support a guy who was single going down to Africa. Like, hey, it'd be better to be married. And he goes, hold on a second, 1 Corinthians 7. I get to serve Jesus with a singleness of mind. I get to go. I get to get after it. You know, he actually got made, of, made fun of by other missionary wives. And they would say of David, it's just because you can't find a wife. I've got to ask you, are those who are single that are serving Jesus less than those who are being married, who are married and serving Jesus? Would they have done better? Would David Livingstone have done better if he was married? Paul doesn't seem to think so. You ready for the fun part? Verse 26. It is good that a person remain as he is. In other words, remain single. And you're like, what? Do not tell single people that. Are you crazy? Think about all they're missing out on. Right? Like, you know, marriage and sex and having kids and, you know, uh, you know a co- combined income. Sure, there are some things that a single person will miss out on if they do not get married. But remember what we said at the beginning. The goal of a single Christian is not sex, kids, and early retirement. The goal is to be devoted to God. To be and make fully devoted followers of Christ. Which I know feels radical and ridiculous in the age of music and rom-coms that we live in. But we can't just blame culture. I want you guys to think for a second. How have we miscommunicated to singles in the church? I know I have. Have we communicated explicitly or implicitly that until they get married, they're not really followers of Jesus? We've said things like, hey, when you get married, you'll understand. Or hey, when you have kids. Like that's the expectation. But I don't think these statements are necessarily malicious or evil. But what if we talked more like Paul in verse 28? Look what he says. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I don't know about you, but it sounds like, hey, friend, don't get married. It sucks. That's kind of what that sounds like. How about verses 32 through 35? It says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
What is Paul doing here? I feels like he's dissing marriage and married people, to which all the single people said amen, right? Um, like single people, you get this. Like how many times have you like had a really good friend and you guys would like go eat, play games, travel together at the spur of a hat, but then they got married and the monster of marriage swallowed them up and you've never seen them again. <laughs> They're gone. Like everyone, like even in high school, when your buddy starts to date that girl and you're like, and he's gone, <laughs> we'll never see him again. Now, this is not the sentiment that Paul is talking about, but it is the reality. Listen, marriage divides the interests of a Christian. Fact. It's not evil. Remember, he says, if you have have not sinned, so the point that Paul is making is this. Look, I'm not trying to lay a restraint on you. I'm trying to promote good order and to secure your undivided uh, devotion to the Lord. Verse 35. Paul knows from experience that marriage adds a special burden to the lives of those who enter into it. Not a burden in the sense of slavery and bondage most of the time, but as an added responsibility. And the Bible is clear that the family is a beautiful picture of life and flourishing. It's important to the story of the Old Testament, but let me tell you how it is. It says, at the beginning, God pronounced, it is not good that a man should be alone in Genesis chapter 2. He instructed mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Under the old covenant, God expected every Israelite man and woman to marry. Being married and having children signified God's blessing. Being single or barren signified God's curse. So Israelites needed offspring to keep their inherited land in the family and to preserve their family name, but not so under the new covenant. Listen, singles, married, listen. Offspring language throughout the Old Testament points to the offspring to come, to the one who mediates God's blessing to the world, and he has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the offspring, Galatians 3.16, and he mediates the new covenant to the world. While being married and having physical children is a creational norm, it is no longer fundamental to God's covenant people. What this is saying is this. You do not have to get married to be a Christian or to pass on Christianity. In fact, the New Testament says that God blesses some men and women with singleness because they can have a singleness of mind as they devote to Christ and then bear fruit and multiplying disciples of Christ. Do you hear me? Because those who are single, they can, one, live simply without stressful responsibilities that come with having a spouse or children. Number two, single people, listen to me, you have the opportunity to be content in Christ as here all in all, not just in marriage, sex, or children. And number three, you could serve Christ more readily with single-minded devotion. Now, because we're human and we have passions and we have desires, Paul is wisely puts in another statement in verse 36. Now he goes, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry, it is no sin. What is he saying there? Hey, bro, if you're out of control, man, all right, and you're, you're just passionate, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to say this is still Christian and not crossing a line. 
He's basically saying, hey, if in your singleness, your heart is devoted to God, but there's a piece of you you just really long to be married, you're passionate. He says, basically, don't fall into sin, get married. Totally get it. But listen to me. Whether you're single or whether you're married, we share the same priority. When you get into marriage, it's not going to answer all you think it's going to answer for you. Single people, it will not answer. So Paul says, verse 37, but whoever, firmly, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he refrains from marriage will do even better. The meaning is very simple. Hey, if you get married, hey, you did good, man. You did good. But if you don't get married and you're under control and you're ready to devote to Jesus, you did better. Now, your relationship status does not change your top devotion. Listen to me. In marriage, there are no marriage people problems. There are single people problems that you bring to your marriage. That's a fact. So here's the reality. Whether you're single or whether you're married, you still need to learn the same lesson. And that's how to devote your life to Jesus. Because a husband is not Jesus. And a wife is not Jesus. And having kids are not Jesus. And if you make them Jesus, it will ruin your wife, your husband, or your kids and those around you. So here's the point. 1 Corinthians 7, 27. Let's go all the way back to the top a little bit. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Let me just remind you, if you're married, stay that way. It is good. You did a good thing. It is not a good idea for you to get divorced. Like, I want to devote to Jesus. But like, no, you, okay, stop. You're staying. Yes, those who are single can be more single-minded in their devotion to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But you've got to stay in the relationship because you still can glorify God. A good example of this is a guy named Adoniram Judson. Have you guys ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Incredible man. He was a missionary to India. But this man fell in love with a woman because it happens, right? When a man meets a woman. Okay. And so he like met this girl and this girl's name is Anne and he just falls in love with her. And within a month, he asks her to marry him. Now that's called passion. And so, but here's the thing. He writes her a letter, says, can I be your suitor? And she responds, not if you don't ask my parents. And so he writes a letter to her dad, and I want to read you this letter, because this is a man who understands that whether he is single or whether he's married, he is devoted to Jesus. And he won't marry anybody else who does not share the same conviction. Listen to this letter. He says this to his future father-in-law. He writes, I have now to ask whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? 
Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which would redound to her Savior from, heaven, uh, from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's a brother who understands. If I'm getting married, I'm not changing what I'm pursuing in my life. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, and that's who I live for. Friends, listen. Whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, it doesn't matter what you are. Listen, that is not your identity. Your identity is in Jesus. And your top priority has to at all times be a devotion to Christ. Or else everything in your life will get out of joint and get out of place and it will lead to a lot more heartbreak than you realize. It'll be devastating. Single people, devote your hearts to Christ. There's no secret gem within marriage that's gonna solve your problem. You're gonna have to learn the same lesson you're learning right now. And that is Jesus is enough. When Bonnie and I were deciding to date, uh, I, I said this to her. I said, hey, listen, I want to be a missionary one day. And I don't know if we should date unless that's something you want to do. And she goes, well, that's what I want to do as well. Now, here's the reality. I'm still going to date that girl because she was just fine and I really wanted to date her. But I was doing my best to be like Judson. And uh, we've never been missionaries in the sense of a foreign country, but we're missionaries here in Cody just like you. And maybe that's not why you married the girl you married because she wants to pursue and follow Jesus. But you guys can decide now to want to do that. Maybe you're single right now and you're just praying and you've been praying for a spouse. What if it would be to slow down and make that secondary to where you're praying that you would be fully devoted to Jesus first and let God control what happens next? Every single one of us have to pray that prayer. Here's five things I want you to consider as we leave this place and we wrap up. Number one, guys, if Jesus is your top priority, and listen, it's not, it's not, it's a battle. Because everything else in your selfishness just wants to get up there. We've got to make loving decisions with our time, talent, and treasure that match up to a devotion to Jesus, okay? We've got to let them be taught and let everything in our life, our money, our time, uh, our talents, our gifts, our health, everything is subject to that. Do you believe that to be true? You need to figure that out this week. Number two, you've got to stop looking to another job, another season, another relationship status for your joy. Stop saying, well, when we get through this season, it's going to get better. You guys say that through the summer. I'm just so busy. And then November comes in and you're saying the same thing. It's not in the next season. It's not in the next relationship. It's not in the next status. It's not in the next dollar. It's not in the next paycheck. It's in Jesus. Stop looking to anything else outside of him and your relationship with him. Number three, friends, listen to me. Invest in respect and honor the singles who are part of Outpost and Community Church and all those who are single following Jesus. Stop telling them how to find a spouse and call them to full devotion to Christ and ask them to show you how to do it. If you are single in the room, develop a love and joy in your relationship with Jesus as your top priority from now on until you die. Number five, no matter what your relationship status is, do number four, okay? You all seek to mount, uh, allow Jesus to be the top priority. 
I need help with it. Pray that my heart would be radicalized for the gospel, that I would want to give everything for Jesus and that he would be my top priority. And not that I would leave my wife, but I would live with my wife in such a way that it's clear that my top priority is Jesus. And let's help each other do that. Amen? Let me pray for us. We need help. Father, thank you so much for this passage, which is far less about whether we're single or whether we're married. It's more about are we married to you? And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us analyze, be honest about our top priorities and realize, God, that our life would be so much better if we just surrender to you. Some of us, we got some broken spines and our life is out of joint. I pray, God, that you would begin to help us put things in correction. But first and foremost, man, show us, God, that we can trust you. And as lives are transformed, like I know they will be and like they already are being here at Outpost, I pray that the Church of Jesus Christ here in Cody, whether it's at CMA or Cody Bible or, or Hope or any church in this town, as we begin to really pursue you as a top priority of the church, not our denomination, not some theological point, but you first and foremost, I pray that you would become famous in Cody. And that Codyites would know that there is a God and he is good. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.